Go ahead and find Mark chapter 7 with me. Mark chapter 7. One of the most famous parables Jesus ever told uh, is a parable of the sower. It's found in Mark chapter 4, one of the few, um, I have to double check, maybe the only parable that Mark records. Um, But the point of the parable of the sower is well enough known. That is basically there will be different reactions to Jesus. Um, The same seed may be planted all over, but it all depends on the state of the soil that determines what will grow there. And in the same way, the same gospel is preached, the same good news is pronounced about Jesus, but it all depends on the state of the heart of the hearer that determines what will be done with that information. Does does that parable ring true to you? Have you encountered people who have different reactions to Jesus? The same Jesus, the same information, and yet wildly different reactions. To me, it's one of the most... It's common sense in its, in its uh, telling of the parable and, and the, uh, the farming analogy, and it's common sense when you understand what it's about too. What we have in Mark chapter 7, I think, is a sort of real-life example of the parable of the sower. What we have in Mark chapter 7 is a telling of different reactions to the same Jesus. There are some in, in Mark 7 who are quick to accuse Jesus. That's what they see. When they see Jesus, they want to accuse him of something. There are some who are receptive, but nevertheless are slow in their understanding of Jesus. And there was someone else in Mark chapter 7 who was determined to believe, no matter what. So I want to just walk with you through uh, part of Mark chapter 7 and look at this sort of parable in real life. To begin with, let's see those who are quick to accuse. Mark 7 and verse 1. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem... They saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. Stop there for now. So the situation here in verse 1 is that some Pharisees and scribes have come from Jerusalem to scrutinize Jesus. These guys really represent the, the religious establishment of Jerusalem. It seems Jesus is in Galilee, the telling of this. So, so they traveled some distance to come and investigate him because Jesus has really come onto their radar. He is saying some things which, uh, uh, which are pretty incendiary. He's claiming some big authority for himself. And they're going to check him out. It seems they've already made up their mind. They're going to trip him up. And when they arrive, they immediately find fault. Jesus' disciples ate with defiled, unwashed hands. And of course, their point is, what Jesus' disciples do reflects on Jesus. That if if this is something they don't don't care about, then apparently it's something Jesus must not care about. He must not make a big deal out of eating with unwashed hands. And that's a problem for the scribes and Pharisees. 
Now, why is that? Well, Mark is aware many of his readers, like us, will be ignorant of many of these first century Jewish customs regarding ritual hand washing. And so he includes in verses 3 and 4 a brief parenthesis. Um, you should know they're, they're not getting on to Jesus' disciples about washing their hands like your mom got on to you about washing your hands. That's not the same thing. Uh, th- these words, defiled and unwashed, are really theological terms, not hygienic terms. So let, let's briefly describe why it is this is such a big deal. Maybe the first thing to say is, to ask is, what did the law of Moses actually have to say about washing one's hands in a ritual way? Well, the law of Moses mandates that priests must wash their hands and their feet prior to entering the tabernacle in the temple. Several passages about that. And the washing, you can read, involves the cupping of one's hands, the scooping up of water, and then letting the water fall through your fingers. It's a ritual purification. Now, there are records that show that by the 2nd century B.C., many Jews had voluntarily adopted the purity laws of the priests and regularly washed their own hands this way. There's really nothing in the Law of Moses about this as a common practice among everyone, but it seems in the 2nd century this had developed as a practice that everyone sort of purifies themselves in this ritual way. We even have an accompanying prayer um, in record for us which mentions this ritual hand-washing The regular prayer which would be offered at this time of washing goes something like this. Blessed be thou, O Lord, King of the universe, who sanctified us by thy laws and commanded us to wash the hands. So what seems to have happened is that the Pharisees had taken these passages about priests and they had made traditions that they applied to everyone. Mark adds in a bunch of other traditions of the same category in verse 4. The washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches, which are probably something like purification rituals where some more of these priestly actions were used to, uh, to wash objects, not just one's hands. But this hand-washing question is really a part of a larger issue the scribes and Pharisees had with Jesus, and that is just his relationship with tradition in general and their traditions. There's several stories back in Mark chapter 2 which all center on Jesus refusing to bend to their traditions. Uh, Traditions about table fellowship, who one ate with. Traditions around fasting. Traditions around Sabbath observance. The hand-washing issue is just another one of these. So their question in verse 5 really is a condemnation. Why do you let your disciples defile themselves? Why are you okay with ritual defilement? And Jesus is the object of attack because as their teacher, he is held responsible for their practices. Well, what Jesus does is is answer the accusation by quoting and applying Isaiah 29 and verse 13 to them. Verse 6 again. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. If you go back and read Isaiah 29, what's happening there is being described as, Ahead of the siege of Jerusalem, what is described, a siege that will happen, of course, because of Judah's continued rebellion, despite God's constant pleas, in preparation and foreseeing that event, um, God calls them to account and describes the reason why it's happening. The text Jesus quotes is about how in its rebellion, Judah never forgot to pay lip service to God. In all their rebellion against God, they always made sure to say the prayers. 
They always made sure to go through the motions of being committed to God without ever actually committing their hearts to Him. They knew how to move their mouth and pray the, pray the ritual prayers, but then they went home and just did what they wanted all along. Their traditions had taken place of the actual will of God. They knew how to draw near to Him with their lips while their hearts remained far from Him. So can you see why Jesus applies this Isaiah passage to these scribes and Pharisees? Because it's exactly what they're doing to Jesus. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you, he says. Their, their accusations are not based on God's word. They're based on their traditions, their oral law. And so as one man says, in the outward appearance of their piety, the Pharisees were impeccable since they scrupulously observed numerous prescriptions and commandments. It was nevertheless a lie because they had not surrendered themselves to God. So there's the problem of elevating tradition in verses 1 through 8. But as you continue reading in verse 9, Jesus diagnoses an even bigger problem than an overemphasis on tradition, which is all the things they left undone as they were minding their traditions, the blatant hypocrisy. The thing that got lost in all of these scruples about the law, the thing that got lost was the actual will of God. Verse 9. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, quote, whatever you would have gained from me is korban, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. So verse 9 drips with sarcasm. He says, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. You are doing a great job of that. You're doing a really great job of not doing what God says. The mental gymnastics you do in order to avoid obeying God really are quite amazing. The problem is not just that the traditions are too strict with God's law. Sometimes that's our, our, our idea of what the Pharisee problem was. They were just a little too strict about that, about that law stuff. No, really, in establishing their traditions, what really happened is they rejected the actual commands of God. It's not strictness that's the Pharisee problem. Really, it's laxity, which is their problem. So, so what exactly are they lax about? What exactly in God's law do they not seem to care about? Jesus gives an example in verse 10. In verse 10, Jesus quotes what is the fifth commandment in the Ten Commandments, and it's both positive and negative forms. Um, verse 10, uh, the end of verse 10, especially emphasizes the seriousness of this command to God. Yes, honor one's father or mother, but also in the law, there was a death penalty warranted for the reviler of father or mother. This is serious business, and it's pretty cut and dry what God's will is, as parents relate to their, as children relate to their parents. God is really concerned that children honor, not revile their parents. Now, it doesn't say, here's everything you must do for your parents, and here's all the things you must not do. Almost certainly because that's a list that would be impossible to make exhaustively. It's an intentionally broad command, a precept, because honoring one's parents takes a lot of forms. So does reviling one's parents. Well, Verse 11 contrasts that simple law of Moses in verse 10 with the tradition of the Pharisees. There's a strange word in verse 11. The word is korban, 
which simply means gift or offering to God. That's what the word means. It is a word found in the Old Testament. Leviticus 2 and verse 1, for example, several other places. And it simply refers to something which is reserved for sacred use. Something that is set apart for God. And so if you had an animal, a pure and an unblemished animal you wanted to sacrifice to God, you might say, this is korban. This is set aside not for our use. This is set aside for God's purposes. Now, all that sounds good. Korban is supposed to be a good thing. It's a good thing in the law. But Jesus says it had become a part of, of scribe and Pharisee tradition to tell one's parents, whatever you would have gained from me is given to God. It's Corban. Now, it's good to remember, to understand what, what their practice was, uh, it's good to remember in this time and place, um, there's no social security, there's no, Medica- no Medicare, there's no 401k, there's no social safety net. And this was a traditional society where it was typical for several generations to live together under the same roof. And when mom and dad were no longer capable of working, it was expected of their children, in particular the eldest son, to provide for their parents, monetarily, to see after their parents. It was understood there was a debt incurred. They raised you when you couldn't help yourself when you were a kid, and now, when they can't help themselves, you help them. But what Jesus says their practice of Corban did, what they held was, they could declare future prophets Corban. That my work, the money I gain for my work, I can declare it Corban. This is given to God, which sounds very, very holy. And then that meant those assets had to be set aside for God and could not be used to help support your parents. That was their practice. You could declare your income, your future income, Corban. Now, it gets even worse than that. That sounds a little bit shady, but it gets worse than that. As it was practiced, I am told... The one who declared his money Corban may not actually be required to give it to the temple after all, nor would they be prohibited from using that money for themselves in the meantime. It was simply a way of avoiding helping your parents with God's name attached to it. Here's a holy reason why I don't have to help mom and dad. Now go back and read what God actually said. Verse 10 again. Moses said, here's the law. Honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father and mother must surely die. Now, you could put a really holy and righteous spin on this practice of Corban. Sorry, mom and dad, but you have to understand just how holy and righteous I am. This is for God, and I wouldn't want to take away from God to give to you. I've already declared that all that I have is to be given to God upon my death. Wouldn't want to break that declaration, would we? Wouldn't want to rob God. But as verse 10 which is very clearly God's will, is verse 10 actually being done? Is this God's intention? Clearly not. Can you see now verses 6 and 7 really hit home? Only now, understanding the sorts of things they're really about. A people that honors me with their lips. This is dedicated to God, while their heart is far from me. I don't have to help mom and dad because I promised it to God. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Their traditions were not just a matter of being a little too strict with God's law. Chiefly, their traditions were ways of getting around the actual will of God. They were using God as an excuse not to do God's will. Let's not do what God said, and let's use God as our excuse for not doing what God said. That's what they were doing. And so verse 13, Thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, 
and many such things you do. What was presented as holy and strict observance to the law was actually a way of making void the law. The traditions were just really elaborate justifications so you would not actually have to do what God said. Like, for example, honor your parents. Even worse, Jesus says, many such things you do. I just gave one example of many. The Corban was not an isolated example, but one of many that could be cited where the intention of God through Scripture was being obscured through tradition. So how does the accusation of verse 5 look about now? Verse 5, why, dear disciples, not walk according to the tradition of elders, but eat with defiled hands? Has Jesus really committed a great crime through violating traditions like these? In the first place, the traditions were not from God, neither the washing of hands for the common people nor the Corban. But more, the traditions supplanted the actual will of God. They were clouding the vision of these scribes and Pharisees. The Son of God stood before them. And all they could see was that his disciples ate without washing hands. And Jesus says, if that's your tradition, if I'm going to be condemned for violating those traditions, I'm going to violate those traditions all day long so that we can actually do the will of God. So do you see the kind of soil that when this this man comes and preaches his message, do you see the kind of soil these people are, people which are quick to accuse? Which brings us to verse 14. The next interaction shows us people who are slow to learn. So the previous section is all directed at these scribes and Pharisees who have come to check Jesus out. Now in verse 14, Jesus calls all people to him in order to talk about what true defilement is. The scribes and Pharisees have gotten on to Jesus and his disciples for being defiled, eating with defiled hands. Jesus is going to give a lesson on what defilement actually means. This is verse 14. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand, there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. So the scribe and Pharisee contention was that Jesus' disciples were defiling themselves because they ate with unwashed hands. Jesus contradicts their teaching of defilement, And he teaches what really defiles. And basically what he says in verses 14 and 15 is, defilement is not an outside-in kind of thing, but an inside-out kind of thing. Defilement does not come from without. Defilement comes from within. An outside and foreign contaminant that you can wash your hand off in a ritual washing, this is not what makes us clean or unclean. What really makes us clean or unclean are the things that come from within a person. Now, What you get in verses 14 and 15 is what he says to all the crowd, a summary of his message. What you don't get for all the crowd is a detailed explanation. Jesus does this with the parables a lot. He does it in Mark chapter 4 with the parable of the sower. Um, And that is, he tells the the parable to the crowd and he just sort of leaves it there. And it's their job to go puzzle over it and, and, and think about it. All the crowds get is verses 14 and 15. But what Jesus often does is go with his disciples and have a question and answer time about his teaching. That's what happens here. This is verse 17. When the people entered the house, uh, sorry, when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared, Peter, uh, Mark says in a parenthesis, thus he declared all fruits clean. 
And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, evil slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. So the disciples do not understand verse 15. And so they ask Jesus, what was that all about, this inside-out, outside-in business? And Jesus, in verse 18, questions their ignorance. Then are you also without understanding? Are you really as ignorant as everyone else? This is one of several statements made where the disciples' lack of understanding is really hit home. And Jesus calls them out, how slow they are to understand. They do not get Jesus. They do not understand the things that he says very quickly. And they certainly don't understand his identity very quickly. Well, first he explains in verse 15, Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? It's about the accusation of the scribes and Pharisees, whose big worry was that eating with unwashed hands would defile you and make you unclean. Jesus says it doesn't work like that. Actually, they're exactly wrong. Basically, just to be plain spoken, here's how it works with clean and unclean hands and eating and all that. The food goes in one end and out the other through the stomach. That, that's what happens when we eat. Where it doesn't go is through the heart. It goes through the stomach. It does not go through the heart. Of course, that's scientifically true, but this is not a physiology lecture. What he means by heart is the center of a person, the real you, the place from which all your actions and attitudes come. The whole problem with the scribes and Pharisees was that they ignored the heart, that they were concerned with the purity of their stomachs and not with the purity of their hearts. Again, verse 6, the people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In verse 20, Jesus tells what does defile a person. The source of true defilement is the human heart when sin takes root there and begins to grow and fester. Defilement doesn't come from without. Defilement comes from within. It starts, he says, with thoughts. Notice in his list, evil thoughts is the first one in verse 21. And then it proceeds to work itself out in every flavor of sin. If we've read the Sermon on the Mount, you've seen Jesus do this. He traces back every sin he mentions to its inner roots, to the lust, to the intention, to the fantasy of heart, which first conceives of it, and then it is given birth in one's actions. Jesus is saying these are what defile a person. You do not get infected because you eat your bread with unwashed hands. It starts in the heart with evil thoughts, and then works itself out in evil actions and attitudes. If you really want to be holy, let's not talk about washing hands. Let's stop quibbling about hand washing, and let's take deep and long looks inside of our own hearts. This is Jesus' remedial teaching for his disciples, who are slow to learn. Let's talk about defilement. These people got it wrong. I'm going to tell you how to get it right and not make their mistake. So we've got a a pretty... Um, pretty terrible group of hearers, pretty bad soil in the first point. And we get a group that's interested, that wants to learn, but is really slow, and Jesus has to hold their hand. Well, you really get in this third story I want to talk about, someone who is absolutely determined to believe, the person we would least expect to have this sort of faith, 
and yet puts everyone else in this chapter to shame. This is verse 24. It's one of the most puzzling interactions Jesus ever has and one of the most fascinating. Verse 24. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not, anyone, did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth. And she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, let the children be fed first. For it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. So in verse 24, he's in the region of Tyre and Sidon. This is a region north of Galilee, which is almost entirely Gentile. Um, Which is, by the way, this is one of the only times Jesus ventures outside the borders of Palestine in his uh, his, uh, uh, earthly ministry. Which, that fact alone is, I think, quite significant. And when he does go outside, we should really sit up and take note. But, but I also can't help but think of how Jesus had just been jousting with the scribes and Pharisees about defilement and uncleanness and about what the law defines as clean and unclean. He's been talking about unclean food and he goes into the realm full of unclean people. I think it really invites a comparison to Acts chapter 10 where Peter, after being taught about clean and unclean food, seeing the vision from heaven, goes and ministers to the house of a Gentile from unclean food to unclean people. That's the journey of Acts 10 of Peter. In this story, after Jesus teaches about unclean food laws, he travels to Tyre and Sidon where he ministers to this unclean woman. Well, in verse 24, somewhere in the region of Tyre and Sidon, he goes and enters this house. I don't know why this house. I don't know why Jesus went there. Mark just says he went, um, in part not wanting to be recognized. Some think maybe he was here on a break, trying to get away from all the the heat uh, in the borders of, uh, of Galilee. But, but it's unsuccessful if that's what he's after, verse 24, because even here his fame is spread. And so while in the house, in verse 25, a, a woman whose daughter has an unclean spirit, has a demon, comes in and falls down at his feet. I want you to notice how deliberate Mark is in saying she was, verse 26, a Gentile, and if, in, in case you don't believe him, a Syrophoenician woman by birth. So double Gentiles is sort of what he's saying. She's from modern-day Syria. She's from outside the borders of Israel. Mark really wants us to know this woman is a Gentile because it shapes everything about this interaction. Notice in verse 26 her desperate persistence. Verse 25, first, she fell down at his feet, a posture of humiliation, and in verse 26 begs him to cast the demon out of her daughter. Desperation. Well, Jesus' response to her desperation is, I think, one of the strangest in Scripture. And it probably should make us uncomfortable. Verse 27. He said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. I think the children are best understood to mean the children of Israel. And I think the dogs are best understood as a derogatory name many Israelites called Gentiles. Matthew's account of this same story makes it even more clear when Jesus says this. 
I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, not to the dogs of the Gentiles. So in a sense, what Jesus is saying to her is, when she comes and says, please help my daughter, he basically says, why should I? My work is not among your people. I'm not here for the dogs. I'm here for the sheep. And yes, Jesus loads it up with some colorful and arguably offensive language. Now, I do not believe Jesus has suddenly turned into some sort of bigot. Rather, what I think he is doing is testing this woman's faith by parroting the sort of thing that these scribes and Pharisees in the previous story might have said about this woman. And their high horse attitudes about unclean things and unclean people. I believe Jesus parrots that sort of typical Jewish bigotry. And as shocking as Jesus' question is, the woman's answer, I think, is even even more so. Verse 28. But she answered him, Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. She says, If you want to call me a dog, not worthy of being fed like the children, that's fine, but you have to admit, even dogs get the children's crumbs that fall under the table. You can call me whatever you want, but I've come to help my daughter, and I believe you're the only man that can do it. It's, first of all, we give her credit for her wit. That's a, a very witty response. But more importantly, it is a response that shows a profound faith in Jesus' power that we have yet to see in Mark chapter 7. We've yet to see it from the scribes and Pharisees. We've even yet to see it from the disciples. And how does Jesus respond to her quip? Well, he quickly drops whatever offensive language he was, he was using. Notice in verse 29, he credits her response as the reason he heals the daughter in verse 29 for this statement, because of what you've said and because of the faith that you've said it with. Her response was full humility, full trust in Jesus' power that was even willing to overlook an offensive title. And because of that, Jesus says, I'm going to heal your daughter. And he does. She goes home to find her daughter well. I really think we're meant to read this story, the story of this woman, especially in comparison to Jesus' interaction with the scribes and Pharisees. Jesus exploded their notions of what defiled someone and made them unclean, exposing their own hypocrisy and their own defilement in the process. That's what Jesus did in the first story. And now he interacts with a woman who would be considered unclean by every single one of those scribes and Pharisees, unworthy of anyone's attention, any Jew's attention, And she displays a simple and profound trust in Jesus' power. I believe the question Mark is raising in putting these stories together is this. The question Mark is raising is this. Who's really the unclean unclean ones here? Who's the dog in this story? In the dog children back and forth, we see that the Gentile dogs may actually be more worthy of what Jesus is serving than the children of Israel. Who and what is defiled? Who and what is a dog? We're having our notions of what those things are turned upside down. So I think what we have in Mark chapter 7 really is a parable in real life. The parable of the sower taught us that just as different soils receive the same seed in different ways, so different hearts receive the gospel, the same gospel in different ways. That's certainly what's happened in this chapter. The Pharisees, the disciples, the Syrophoenician woman three very different responses to the same Messiah. But I think there's an additional insight here. Maybe we layered on top of that parable. And that is this. Our expectations 
of who is best positioned to receive the message of Jesus, our expectations are likely to be confounded along the way. Our idea of who will be good soil are often exactly wrong. Because the people we might have expected to be the most ready for Jesus, the scribes and Pharisees, the people who read their Old Testament all day every day, which taught of the Messiah, these are the most hostile to Jesus. They come to him only to find fault. Jesus, your disciples don't wash their hands. And in his response, Jesus finds a much bigger fault with them, a blatant hypocrisy which uses God as an excuse not to do what God says. The people we most expect to be ready for Jesus are the least ready for him. The people we might expect to have the quickest grasp of what Jesus said, his own disciples, the ones who followed him around and heard him more than anyone else, even they're slow to understand. Now they'll get there, but Jesus is going to hold their hand and suffer for a long time with them, and he's going to bring them along slowly but surely. They'll get there, but they're slow. But then the woman, who we would expect to have no understanding of Jesus, no interest in Jesus, this Gentile woman, this dog, is the only one who seems to get it. She comes in desperation and humility, which is the way we come to Jesus. She even is willing to endure insult on the way there from the mouth of Jesus. But she has a response that's not just witty. She really has a response that foretells the worldwide scope of the gospel. Even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Indeed, they're going to get much more than crumbs. I think what Mark chapter 7 is teaching us is that we are not fit soil inspectors. People will confound our expectations. They will confound our expectations in very disappointing ways, like the scribes and Pharisees, and they will confound our expectations in very exhilarating ways, like the Syrophoenician woman. The Gentile dog receives Jesus better than the rabbis in this story. And so the question is, how about you? How are you receiving Jesus? What kind of soil are you being? The question is not what's your background, what's your knowledge level, what's your prominence. The question is, what do you do when you meet Jesus face to face? How ready are you to hear him? How ready are you to follow him wherever he goes? Maybe there's someone here that realizes you have not been receptive to Jesus. You've not been receptive to his teaching. You want to make that right. You want to repent. Whatever your spiritual need, come forward now as we stand and sing. Stand here.